This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is Monday, the 22nd. Markets remain really flat. One thing um, that happened this morning is Neil Kaskari came out, mentioned that it's a close call either way versus raising the rates at another time in June or skipping. More or less, his statements were signaling that this might just be a pause of sorts and we might not be done with the tightening cycle. Uh, but yeah, I mean, apart from that, markets have been flat. I mean, the S&P sitting around 4,200. VIX is still slightly under 17. Um, so nothing nothing crazy there. Tim, let's kind of open up the conversation on the market update. Yeah, nothing crazy at all. Nothing crazy at all. I mean, the market's like watching the paint dry. I mean, with the exception of the KRE kind of bouncing around and wondering if you have a bottom in, in the regional banks, the trends seem like they're the same, you know, kind of small caps go down every day and five tech stocks go up every day and the builders do pretty well. Everything else is kind of sideways to down. And uh, so it's really been a, a, a pretty boring tape to watch, you know, 4,200 in the VIX at 17. Boy, it doesn't strike me as an awesome opportunity to jump into the market, but it's been kind of melting up in the face of incredibly low volatility for a little while. You mentioned Cash Gary, who I think has been historically thought of as dovish, making hawkish comments. That's been the case for the Fed broadly. You know, Bullard, who's not not a voter, but he said he could see two more hikes. So over and and I said last week on this podcast, you know, you're going to have 14 Fed speakers, 14 of them will be hawkish. Well, I got that one right for a change. I mean, you know, the Fed is they they are sounding as hawkish as they can. Pa uh, Powell really didn't make much of an impact in his comments late last week, but uh, you know, so now Fed fund futures have have priced in a a one third uh, shot of a hike this year. That was that was de minimis previously about two weeks ago. And then the two hikes that were priced in, and it was like two and a half hikes priced in at the end of the year, that's down to just one hike. Um, Drew, I don't know if you saw this note from the head strategist at BAML, uh, Bank of America, Savita Sub Subramanian. Did you see that no, this morning? I did not. New year and target is 4,300. So she's raised her target from four. And the reason I'm mentioning it is what is driving it. So she starts the note with the era of easy money is behind us. But now I start all my speeches, right? That's my whole theme. The era of easy money is behind us. Cheap money, low inflation forever. That's over. But she makes a, a reasonably defensible comment, but that might be a good thing over the past few decades as we have enjoyed financially engineered growth, cheap financing buybacks and costs. Today, corporate America shifted focus to structural benefits, efficiency, automation, and AI, and have bought themselves times to adapt. She refers that she then goes on to refer, say, don't worry about 21 times earnings because trough multiples tend to get high. Well, I think that's a bizarre jump to make the argument that we're in trough multiples after after the many billions of dollars uh, of stimulus and demand that has been created. And now we're dealing with a higher cost of capital uh, and fewer buybacks, et cetera. 
so I just don't see how you could call it trough. But the point is, is that we are in this, you know, when you start to see bulge bracket strategists raising estimates because of sort of just AI optimism, um, it just strikes me as a as a scary time and you've got to be careful. Uh, you know, I continue to think that what we've been seeing in the market is a big, long counter trend rallies. Every recession or, or, or preview to a recession has had them. Um, uh, but who knows? You know, I mean, logic isn't truth, as they say. I, I can make the logical argument all day uh, that there should be mean reversion on all time high multiples on mean reversion on all time high uh, margin, mean reversion on all-time high um, uh, central bank money printing. Uh, but the market seems incredibly not nervous about that. And, you know, we had the failure of the debt ceiling negotiations over the weekend, and we come in, S&P futures are dead flat on Monday morning. Did that, did that surprise you at all? Yes. Uh, I mean, Yellen was talking at the White House Council of Economic Advisors mentioned that a downturn could be as bad as a great recession, right? You could have 8 billion people functionally losing their jobs, stock market going down 45%. Um, I mean, Moody's Analytics had a report that had similar numbers, um, 7 million people out of work, 10 trillion in household wealth evaporated. And all the comments from, you know, both McCarthy and Biden were, uh, they were all over the place. Um, yeah. You know, Biden seemed to allude to the fact that it was too late to, you know, call the 14th yeah. or to have a gimmicky coin that's worth $2 trillion yeah. or whatever they want to do. So this is kind of the last resort. And, you know, statements were everywhere. Um, were taxes yeah. on the table? Were they off the table? I don't know. Uh, you, you know, you had different answers. So, yeah. Um you know, I, I couldn't really understand why they were both kind of selling that kind of, uh, you know, that happy, um, everything is going well, we're discussing. You just knew it wasn't true. And yeah. I think that's partly why the market wasn't terribly surprised that the negotiations took a step back. I just think if 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 Biden is saying revenues are on the table, meaning we're going to let the Trump tax cut sunset, uh, and if you don't know what sunsetting means, it, it's basically the way that either side can pass legislation and so that the CBO doesn't score it as having an inflationary impact or, 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 a, or a debt or deficit creating impact. They say, well, we'll have the legislation sunset in three years. Well, when it's tax cut legislation that puts the Democrats in the un unenviable position of having to say, oh, well, look, uh, we should just let these taxes sunset. And the Republicans say the Democrats are raising taxes. It's like, well, no, we're not raising taxes, but you set this legislation because of the deficit it creates to sunset in three years. So either tax cuts pay for themselves or they don't. Well, maybe they do when taxes are 40 percent, but probably not when uh, wealthier Americans are paying less than 20 percent on average. Anyway, um, uh, but I digress on that. Yeah. Uh, the, the point is, though, that there's just no overlap between the right and the left. There is no overlap to that Venn diagram. And I just don't see how you're going to end up coming to a compromise. What I think is underestimated, look, ultimately you will. 
but everybody's got to have the proverbial gun to the head. I mean, you know, June 1st is the date that Yellen has set. Kind of June 8th, 9th looks like the day where the Treasury General account really trips zero and you have to start making decisions on payments, on prioritizing of payments. Um, I don't know. I, I, I still think I don't. I, McCarthy is the weakest speaker by design in House history. In other words, it only takes one person from his caucus to uh, vote or, or to motion to vacate the speakership. Uh, and he's already got 50 or 60 uh, House Republicans who are saying we are not we don't even think McCarthy should be talking. We don't even think until McConnell until uh, the Senate actually passes the House bill. We don't even think we should be discussing. The only thing that we're passing is that House bill that we already passed. Well, that House bill that they already passed has no chance of going anywhere. But that's the position that they're in. They are not going to vote for a spending, anything other than what they've already voted for. And I just think it's going to be hard for McCarthy to hold his caucus together. Uh, and if it looks to Democrats like Biden has capitulated, they're not going to support it and they're going to get behind the 14th Amendment. I don't know. I, I, I think that people underestimate the likelihood of the 14th Amendment. I think, I think there's a good chance that that's where we end up because I just can't see McCarthy being able to agree to a deal that Biden could could sign or even sell to Democrats because of the pressure that he's got on the right end of his caucus. Yeah, well, then they would leave the Democrats if they call the 14th Amendment. They'd be going to a Supreme Court that has got a conservative slant, obviously, but they might agree that it might be the last best choice to end this charade um, yeah. of the discussing default that happens every year, which yeah. maybe in practice at one point made sense. But after 2013, after the last two years, it's clearly not the best way to govern the world's largest economy. So, no. yeah, we'll see. No, it certainly isn't. No. Um, you know, one thing that's, I guess, somewhat surprising is you've seen home builder sentiment increase quite a bit. Uh, builder confidence in the market for newly built single family homes rose five points in May uh, to 50. So, you know, that's been several five straight months of gain. So so what do we make of that? Yeah, they're the only show in town. You know, yeah. I think I said this last week, but, you know, home builders are now more than 30 percent. I think they're around 32 percent of all new homes for sale or 32 percent of all the inventory. Normally, they're about 10 percent. Um, so even though affordability is at the worst level since 1979, according to University of Michigan home building sentiment and just any other way you want to look at it, affordability now is even worse than it was in 07, 08. You know, you have a cohort of people that are going to really, really stretch to, to, to own a home. And, um, affordability can stay really stretched for a really long time as Canadians, as people in Toronto. Um, and, you know, it feels like that's going to be the case. Now, eventually there's got to be a crowding out. If you spend, if you spend all of your disposable income on your mortgage payment and on your house, uh, well, that's going to crowd out what else you can do. Uh, look, prices have come in nationally on the, on, on all houses, on existing, um, but the other thing for the economy to remember, and, and look, I, I think that the credit insensitivity of housing has probably been the most surprising. And, and in retrospect, it really shouldn't have been, right? In retrospect, we should have looked at it and said, hold on a second. All of these people who have mortgages at two and seven eighths, they're not moving. 
There's going to be no supply. We are going to have the very basic economic issue of a supply and demand problem. Uh, but what does happen is turnover falls, right? So depending on where you are in the country, turnover is like down 30 or 40 percent. There's a reason why Home Depot put up the worst comps it's put up since the great financial crisis. Uh, you know, turnover matters. Certainly matters for realtors and mortgage brokers and title search people and all of the uh, all of the people who are in the business of um, uh, remodeling homes because so much work tends to happen before and after transactions. So there is a negative impact to the economy to housing. It's just not at all what you would have expected. And I suspect prices will stay, you know, after a 38% lift in the pandemic. Prices have come in a little bit. I think they'll probably continue to come in a little bit, but very slowly. And I think that housing overall stays a source of kind of relative surprising strength for this economy. Yeah, and a big part of that's new listings. Uh, as you mentioned, like we're, we're down in April by 22% year over year. So there's yeah. nowhere to go except you know, breaking ground, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you still have, at least in the community that I, I live in outside of New York, which they call a K-12 through 12 community because you people pay high taxes for the great public schools for my kids went through the public schools. Uh, they And then they move uh, mm-hmm. because they're sick of paying those taxes. But even with those taxes, people are staying in their homes and there's no available supply. There's really no new supply in my town. It's a you know fill-in town 10 miles past Newark, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, you still have buying wars. You still have bidding wars. Now, it, it feels like it's getting less. You've gone from maybe three or four people bidding on a house as opposed to 13, 14 a year ago. But, you know, pricing hasn't come in a lick. No, that's very true. And it's one of those two I can't imagine many people are sticking around Summit to retire. Uh, not a lot of back rack going at some point. <laughs> no. No. Um, you know, one thing I found that's interesting is we talk about multiples and tr- like where to go from here. There's just the sheer amount of Americans who think that gold beat stocks as a long-term investment, which is uh, 26% of Americans rank gold as the best long-term investment in 2023. I mean, a lot of that's obviously because of what we've seen in regards to inflation. But, you know, I just, I've always felt that there's Ben, maybe it's just out where I live, but people who who love yeah. gold and, and talk about gold, um, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, it's interesting. You look at four hundred one k allocations; they're not going into gold funds. I mean, one no. of the reasons why this market has such a bid behind it is there is the constant passive four hundred one k bid that comes into the market every single day and immediately and automatically and passively gets put to work. Um, and I got to think the demographics of that. I bet you under 30-year-olds, there's not a whole lot of people who think gold is better than equities. But if you're over 60, I would think there's a ton of people. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I got to think distorts that statistic is, um, you know, just kind of talk radio, right-wing radio. There's a whole lot of gold bugs crap being advertised on if you yeah. if, if you roll through the stations. Uh, so I think that probably influences uh, the older demographic. But the other side of it is, it is logical to me, at least it's defensible uh, to say that I would prefer gold over a period of time. If, if you're at the end of uh, this 
kind of competitive devaluation and inflation globally has reared its head in everywhere from the US to the UK. Don't forget, UK has got 0% growth and 7 or 8% inflation. Japan is dealing with the most inflation that they've dealt with in, you know, since the 1980s. We're dealing with higher inflation. Everybody, but except for basically China, where demand is so weak, is dealing with uh, inflation. And that suggests to me that, that maybe gold uh, makes some sense here. Um, so, uh, but I, I do think that, you know, the real money, the money that is coming into this, you know, in a in, from a passive sense, is still super equity dominated, and I think that probably is reflective of the kind of optimism, sheer optimism that we see in this market. Yeah, I mean, eighteen percent of Americans rank stocks as their top long term holding, and last year was twenty four percent. Yeah, it's just it just it just seems interesting. A lot of people, I think, are just waiting to see how the U.S. is observing, you know, fallouts of higher interest rates. And, and of course, the debt ceiling is going to be a big conversation um, mm -hmm. in regards to this as well. Yeah. In terms of uh, decoupling. So, I mean, you know, we talked about this a little bit at our national sales meeting, which is that while the United States obviously has a strategic imperative to decouple from China, Many countries in Europe might not have the same feelings. However, we've seen Europe back away from Huawei, Huawei and, and from their 5G networks. Um, and there seems to be, you know, a lot of contention right now between the Sino-European you know, Union, um, between, you know, China and the EU. So, so you know, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, do we see the Europeans pursuing, you know, changing supply chains and, and eradicating some of this forced labor and supply chains and what's like what do they do politically yeah i mean i just reject that any of this is really about human rights i mean how long have we how long have we known that there were human rights concerns in china i mean this is this is real politic as we've talked about before this is about de-risking Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know who started to use that term that this, you know, we're not decoupling from China. We're just de-risking as if as if the two things are different. It's the same thing. If you are de-risking, that means you're pulling supply chains out of China. You are making less international investment in China. I mean, look, the United States has responded with all of this legislation from the IRA to the CHIPS Act and, and parts of the Infrastructure Act, which insist that everything has to be U.S. made and originated or, or, or constructed, um, you know, this, this repatriation of both investment and manufacturing is going to continue. And the Europeans are mad at the Americans because we've basically moved faster than they have in building chip assembly and all this, in in our road to um, sort of uh, bringing back uh, manufacturing, um, but I, this isn't going anywhere. This China's political ambitions are what they are, and that begets the response uh, that has come. Um, and I, I don't see any way that this this reverses course. I mean, you know, I guess if Xi were to come out and say, no, we were just kidding about the whole Taiwan thing, and no, we're not going to strengthen our grip around Hong Kong and, and, and the way it operates, like – this this is this is only going in one direction. And whether you want to call it de-risking or decoupling, 
I don't think it matters. And are the now are the Europeans really going to uh, decouple from the United States in favor of China? I don't I don't see that. I I, I, I can't imagine that. No, they they have bigger semiconductor concerns than we do uh, sure. in terms of manufacturing it. And the other thing is, a lot of this is a fallout. I think of you know the Chinese Communist Party's decision to more or less end their long-term stance on term limits. So mm -hmm. once again, they're elevating the man over the party. Right. Uh, and I think they're seeing the effects of that. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know, I've said this a whole bunch of times before. I feel like when I try to read Chinese policy experts, you know, those people who have had a real reputation for knowing what's going to happen in China, more and more of the commentary is, Look, there's the the number of decision makers and the people on the inside now is so small. It's the ranks have been closed so much that there's no real information. Um, but you know, uh, I don't quote Elon Musk often, and obviously what he says is is um, you know because he's so reliant on China. But when he says Xi has told you that their goal is to quote unquote reintegrate Taiwan, which the Chinese would reject as a paraphrasing, um, uh, take them seriously, take them mm -hmm. at their word. And if you take them at their word, then we are inexorably going in that direction. And that's how she behaves. It's, you know, you know, the conscription of young people, the spending on on, on defense, the spending uh, it, around the Navy and in, in, in the uh, in, in the Taiwan Straits and the South China Sea, uh, the the response from the Japanese to spend more on military because they see what's happening. Like this is all happening. It's not just language. It's not just saber rattling and long term ambitions. This is this is very real stuff. And I'm you know, we were talking about optimism. I mean, you know, I mean, I say it all the time. NVIDIA goes up every day, and yet NVIDIA's 100% of their manufacturing are on the island of Taiwan. You know, if if there's if there's any kind of a hot war, and I don't see how there wouldn't be, given the vast majority of Taiwanese consider themselves to be Taiwanese and not Chinese, um, I, I don't see how there shouldn't be some risks starting to be factored in everything from NVIDIA to Apple. Right. And, and from a European standpoint, I mean, luxury market like Chanel, sure, they might be huge losers sure. if, but at the same time, I mean, you've got to weigh that with energy concerns and national security concerns when it comes to tech. Not so yeah. much the Chinese are spying on everybody, but um, you know, do we have enough chips? You know, do we have enough stuff to make our own weapons? You know, are we able to generate our own food, food sources, just base level um, commodities? Right. And obviously, given the importance of technology and war, I mean, you know, yeah. you know, wars are win with technology uh, yeah. and that hasn't changed. And uh, we have to create a moat or I think it's believed that we have to create a moat out of so much of the technology that we have created. People forget that maybe a lot of manufacture, maybe a lot of chips are manufactured in, in China and Taiwan, but the intellectual property, the software, the development, and so on and so forth, vast majority of that comes out of California. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really important intellectual property, whether you're in California or you're the Dutch overlooking and figuring out how to control the, the intellectual property around ASML. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we've discussed government debt a lot. Um, but I think one thing is we're looking at Western corporate debt and that's gone up 
radically as well. Um, you know, in terms of GDP, that's now looking at around 90% between uh, Europe and North America. One third of it's speculative grade, and we're seeing that there's a default risk of about 3% on what yeah. is speculative. So in, in some ways, it just seems like it's all right. I mean, a lot of this debt was taken out at fixed rates when money was really easy. Uh, but I mean, in the long term, you still might see uh, run the risk of a debt hangover. Yeah, whether we're talking about the S&P 500 companies or or FTSE or, or whatever, you know. Yeah. Well, you make a good observation there, which is that a lot of it is debt that it's just like, hey, if you can borrow money at 2%, why aren't you doing it? Mm -hmm. So, right. So so the mega cap companies like even like an Apple saying, oh, well, why don't we go ahead and float some debt? But that's not the case on all of which is kind of B and below. And you have started to see high yield spreads uh, start to move out a little bit. You know, one thing that is very different about this cycle is energy, you know, in, in, in the great financial crisis, you didn't have the great balance sheets around energy. Uh, and now the energy companies have tremendous balance sheets. Um, so well, very often, if you would see high yield getting weak into a recession, it was because you're going into a demand recession, oil's going to collapse, and then all the debt in the oil space is going to be troubled. But that's not that's not the case in this cycle. You know, this has not been a credit fueled cycle. This has been a easy money fueled cycle. Fed money printing, massive fiscal budget deficits, et cetera, PPP loans. So I don't think that credit is the main the main the main driver to the same degree that it's been in previous cycles. I'm not saying that the credit cycle doesn't matter. Quite the opposite. Credit always matters. Credit leads. One of the things that has me more bearish than consensus in this market is the fact that historically, when you see consumer credit and corporate credit, when you see demand fall, when you see what when you see spreads widen out, that precedes a recession. I think this time will be the same. Um, but but I think it really is going to the credits contribution in this cycle will be less probably than either in the 08 recession uh, or in the 01 recession. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm trying to be clear about that. Uh, but I don't think we have a big corporate credit default cycle going now. You know, if it starts, if you, if it, you know, you're going to see it in commercial real estate, right? You're going to see it in office. You can't have 25% vacancy rates across office. Uh, that doesn't mean you're not going to have defaults. You will. And if you have defaults in one area, one big meaningful area of the market, which is office commercial real estate, uh, that means that credit contracts in other parts of the market. Credit contracts in other parts of the market, you start to see defaults rise there too. Maybe there's contagion to that. I just can't say that I'm smart enough to know how that all plays out. Yeah, it just seems in terms of servicing, you know, you mentioned it just seems manageable, right? I mean, yeah. If the average investment grade corporate bonds currently three nine that they're paying off, I mean, the yields looking at five three, I mean, everything's better than market. So they they just took out an opportune time, and there's obviously been a shift to fixed rates as opposed to floating rate bonds. Yes. The question is just how much does credit contract? If credit contracts enough, defaults go up. Mm -hmm. We know that. 
So yeah. how much impact will we have from, you know, consumer default risk going higher? And it is. And and uh, as I said, commercial real estate default risk, multifamily and office and malls and so forth. And it is. But, you know, to what degree? It's just kind of unknowable. I think overall balance sheets are so strong at the consumer and at the corporate level. Uh, and it's obviously not universal. We're talking averages, which is imperfect. But I just, you know, I'm I'm not super super bearish that we get uh, a real credit meltdown in this in this cycle, despite how shaky the the banks have been and all that. Um, anything we overlooked this week? Do you think, Tim? No, you know, you know, I wrote a I wrote in my essay this past weekend. I just think it's an interesting thing for people to think about. It, we've all seen the charts and people talk about the charts of the correlation of risk assets and specifically to the S&P of global balance sheets. Barron's uh, talked about it last year being a 91% correlation. Bank balance sheets grow X percent, S&P grows X percent. The, the, the charts are really quite impressive. It almost makes you say, and I had this conversation with a client last week, it's like, why do we worry about the rest of this stuff? Why don't we just, why don't we just measure global balance sheets and global central bank balance sheets and, and go with that? Um, but it raises the question, if, if as, 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 as this analyst at uh, Bank of America started her essay, the era of easy money is behind us. If cheap money is behind us, the only reason cheap money is behind us is because the, you know, inflation volatility going to zero is behind us. If we have inflation volatility, if we have created in many places too much debt, you know, beyond one times GDP in the US and, 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 and you know, making that what, you know, you're certainly past that in China when you include the provinces and you're certainly past that in Japan. If, if we've created too much debt and it's now getting more expensive to create debt, doesn't that suggest that global central bank balance sheets are either going to be flat to down on a go forward basis as opposed to just grow through competitive devaluation and central bank intervention. Um, I think it does. And I think if it does, if you believe that, then I think it should really alter your view of how you think about equity performance over the next five and 10 years. If you believe inflationary pressures are here to stay after the kind of the anomaly of the past four decades of the great moderation that should have a very important impact on how you think about equities going forward and it should and, and to justify believing that 21 times equities make sense i think you have to then also believe that central bank balance sheets are just going to keep inflating and you know i'm one of those people that don't think that trees grow to the sky even sequoias have to fall down at some point. So. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> yeah. even the redwoods. Yep. Yeah. All right. Sounds good, Tim. Well, um, thanks for your time today. And for all our listeners and subscribers, thanks as well. We're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. 
The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.